Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, with us abide, for round us falls the eventide. O oh, let your word, that saving light, shine forth undimmed into the night. In these last days of great distress, grant us, dear Lord, true steadfastness, that we keep pure till life is spent, your holy word and sacrament. In the name of Jesus, amen. That's from our first distribution hymn today, Lord Jesus Christ with us abide. Excellent hymn, very comforting. So if you, haven't, if you, never, if you don't like to sing, it's, a, it's well worth your read, at least during, during the sermon or something and during church. Uh, today we're going to jump into Luke 19. Let me hit a couple of a quick announcements for you. Um, Theology on Tap this Wednesday at 7. David Brown says we got a keg of homebrew ready to go. So look forward to that. Um, again, every, it catches me off guard every time. My piece of paper says Schumacher's Funeral Planning Seminar. So if you want to help plan Pastor Schumacher's funeral, no, wait, <laughs> it's a funeral planning seminar this, this Saturday at 9 a.m., uh, led by Pastor Schumacher. Um, again, basically just going through the theology of the, the funeral, picking out hymns and readings, and really trying to relieve your family of, of the burden of, of trying to make some of these difficult decisions. And also, it's a, I think it's a great opportunity to make a confession to your family um, the, of, what, of what you actually find to be so comforting in the face of death. And so you let that ring out at your funeral uh, to, your, to the rest of the congregation and, and also to, the, um, to your family. Uh, Easter plants, you'll notice in the back of the sanctuary, as you walk in by the windows, there's a, there's a bunch of dying plants. And you're like, why, are, why have we adorned the sanctuary with dying plants? Well, that's your fault. Uh, no. so, so I guess every year we, we, let the, we let the plants stay here for three weeks until they're claimed. And then since they're like annual, perennial, which one grows back every year? Perennial? perennial they're perennial, so they'll get buried somewhere, in the, or, uh, somewhere around the church. But if you want yours, if you bought one, grab one by the windows there on the entrance to the, to the um, sanctuary. Uh, the Adopt-A-Plot, I mentioned at the announcements, there's an Adopt-A-Plot sign at the Welcome Center where you can find a, a, a flower bed every year. I mean, you're familiar with this generally, but you, you kind of, the whole campus is broken down into little like flower beds and you can help take care of your flower bed. So you take, take ownership and pride in it and, and do with it what you will. So you can sign up for it over at the, um, at the Welcome Center. You can email uh, Beth Hahn with questions there. We're still looking for lawnmowers. See Marty Franken. Oh, uh, Tuesday, April 25th. Is that this Tuesday? Yeah. This Tuesday. Uh, you remember Matt Carlson. So Matt, uh, is, is, um, he, had been, he helped us run the youth for a couple years. He was a, he was a DCE prior to, um, so we, we quit that. He moved back home. He's from Yorkville area and then joined our church. He was here for a few years, decided to be a pastor, and um, ended up going to seminary. And he's, fine. He's, he's currently on vicarage out in California somewhere. He, decide, he finds out where he's gonna be a pastor uh, tomorrow, or on Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can see the week at a glance for more info on that. And last, the, um, there's an all boards meeting. There's, there's a note summarizing the all boards meeting in the week at a glance this week as well. But just to kind of keep you guys, you're, you're, you're mostly the active uh, members of the congregation here at the Bible study. So generally there is a, we had a meeting we called for all the boards to get together because as, as we've mentioned before, uh, we had a very large bequest, uh, just short, just shy of a million dollars back like last summer and um, just trying to decide what to do with that money to best serve the needs of the congregation. Um, so identifying <clears throat> the major needs that we have from a facility standpoint for the church and school and the sanctuary, the organ and, and so forth. And then uh, coming up with the best way to, to go about proceeding and, and how, to, how to cover those expenses. So the idea is um, if we've got, if we know, for example, if we, our organ has many issues that need to be fixed, um, and that's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, instead of putting that in the budget 
and having like an expectation that somehow magically the congregation's gonna be putting 17 times more money in the offering plate. We're saying, well, we've got, somebody's given us all this money to help put toward these expenses. Um, so, but we also don't wanna, we have a lot of, I guess the key areas of expenses were the sanctuary uh, painting. Like if, you've no, if you've ever noticed the paint chipping over the walls in the sanctuary, uh, the narthex just being updated, the safety in the school, making sure that we're, that we're doing all we can to ensure the safety of the children in the school. And then the biggest item was the organ, it has many, many issues that have been growing over the years. So trying to figure out a good way to secure the longevity of the organ for the next 100 years, uh, options there. So um, you'll be seeing in the next few months multiple endeavors. We're trying to put together some committees to help decide uh, what exactly sp expenses are going to be needed in each of those categories. But then also, we, while we could spend all the money in one spot, well, we're trying to kind of divvy it up and, and try to use it across, uh, across all the needs. But we're also wanting, and this I think was a helpful decision, the idea is to help you as a congregation have ownership in whatever the, however the money is spent. So like right now, if we decided without your, without your input to build a giant, I don't know, facility of something, what would be interesting? A donut shop, the Lutheran donut shop, right outside the gym here, but you had no input. We just did it because we had a million bucks. You had no input and no ownership of it. But if we said, everybody wants a donut shop, pretend you did. Everybody wants a donut shop, uh, but we're only gonna use like $300,000 and ask the congregation to chip in another 200,000 if they really actually care. It's one thing to say, we care about the donut shop. It's another thing to say, I'm willing to actually put my money where my mouth is and actually have ownership. But now when we build a donut shop, it's not just paid for by some random guy who you never knew maybe, but it's actually, you've got ownership in it as well. So the idea is, um, the, the, like for example, with the organ, the major expenses there, um, to try to come back to the congregation and say, look, we're gonna use this bequest, this gift, to pay for the majority of our, of our needs on these big projects, but we're looking to raise like $100,000 from the congregation so that the congregation has ownership in the decision, and you can say that you're a part of that as well. So that's uh, more decision, more information will be coming. Uh, so basically the summary I gave you is in the week at a glance, but if you have more questions, talk to me or one of the pastors or any of the board, any of the board heads, or we can give you more information on that. But you'll be seeing as decisions are made uh, what, what we're gonna be doing. And, but right now everything is at the 20,000 foot level. Just wanna keep you guys informed <clears throat> on that. So Luke 19 today, any questions on any of those? I threw a lot at you there. Uh, the donut shop? And now I've confused you. We're not actually building a donut shop, Ty. Dietas is already supplying all of our needs. Luke 19. So last week, we, we almost got to the end of chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, you can snag one over the rack as you first walked in. The end of Luke 19. So uh, just to kind of recap, in, cha in, in chapter 19, Jesus has, has entered Jerusalem proper. Um, we call it Holy Week, the triumphal entry. And we know that Jesus is headed to the cross at this point. So everything is going to start picking up speed. And what's going to happen first is he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple which gets the Pharisees riled up. The Pharisees, the, the, really the Sanhedrin, which is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, a lot of the, chief, the leaders of the people, they all kind of group together and they start going after Jesus even more intentionally than before, which also Jesus is an easy target because he's actually hanging out in the temple. Whereas before, you know, he'd kind of pop up and random Pharisees and individual villages were kind of popping up and causing their little mischief. But now Jesus is in the lion's den, so to speak, and he's standing in the temple and very easy, very accessible. So we're seeing a lot of engagement in, the, in chapter 20. And Jesus does a lot of formal teaching to the Pharisees and to the disciples and us. Um, and then as we get into chapter 21 and following, we start moving toward the crucifixion and the resurrection. So uh, lots of good stuff to look forward to in the, in the coming chapters of Luke. But today with Luke 19, verse 45. So he had Jesus just weeped over Jerusalem. Remember as we finished last week is, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
Um, he was longing for them to repent. He, he, longed for the, he longed for the faith of Jerusalem, and which shows, it shows us the heart of Jesus toward unbelievers. So that they don't, they actually are actively trying to kill him. And yet Jesus is, they're worth crying over for him. He longs for them to, to repent and have life. So that's the, that's the last section. And now verse 45, Jesus cleanses the temple. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Now, think about the temple, the temple's role in the gospel of Luke. Think way back to the beginning. Do you remember when Jesus goes to the temple? To be circumcised, he's there at the beginning, and so right eight days after his birth, and that's where he meets, remember? Simeon, and we get the song of Simeon that we sing after receiving communion. Uh, Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. My eyes have seen your salvation. So, so this Savior that was promised to Simeon, it's hard to kind of picture the Savior in a little baby, but now he's full grown and it's the week of his death. And so now what Simeon had foretold at the beginning of Luke, we're seeing come to fruition now at the end. Also, remember he circled back. So he's there when he was, when he was circumcised and then he came back when he was... 12. We talked we talk about that earlier in Luke. And Jesus, and like some, some speculate that perhaps that was Jesus maybe learning from a, according to his human nature. Remember, he had, to, he, had to, he had to learn how to tie his shoes. He had to learn how to be potty trained because he was fully man. Because not knowing how to tie your shoes and not being potty trained is not sinful. See? So Jesus had no sin, but he was fully man. And so Jesus, while he, ha- while he, according to his divinity, according to his godness, he has all the knowledge of everything of all times. And yet he, he sets that aside. It's impossible for us to rationalize. We're just trying to, we're just kind of confessing how the scripture paints the picture for us. He is fully man, which means he didn't come out of mom, like ready to help wash the dishes. He had to learn. He had to be taught. And um, so he had to learn how to tie his shoes. So you picture Jesus learning how to tie his shoes. And in this, he was learning to pray with mom and dad, faithful Joseph and Mary, learning all the, learning all the promises of the Messiah that the Israel was longing for. So um, the this, this speculative, most convincing argument I've heard is that like, so when Jesus goes to the temple, when he's 12, for the first time, He's, he's, he's like, he's able to go and he's all excited. Dad, we're going to the temple. And, and he said, oh, son, and Joseph is like, well, uh, Jesus, so you call me dad. Let's talk about something here. So perhaps it, it, for the first, oh, he's, dad, we get to, it's my first time to, to go to Jerusalem and I get to see the temple. Well, we've actually been to the temple before. And when we were there, there was a guy named Simeon. This creepy old guy picked you up and scared your mom. And and he was talking about how you were going to be the savior. And so, so you think, so follow that. I mean, just think about how this would have played, potentially, potentially played out. Jesus had to learn how to tie his shoes, how to go to the bathroom. He probably had to learn that he was the Messiah, according to his human nature, at least. So, because again, he set his divine nature aside. It's hard for us to picture, but in some way, Jesus kind of learns that, that, he, is, that he is the promised one. And, uh, and then he, he probably had a, I mean, you, you think at some point he got a sense like he's, he's going to little Israelite school and all the other kids are being mean and naughty. He's like, he doesn't have that urge in him. Isn't that interesting? But so now he goes to Jerusalem. Remember what happens in Jerusalem? What happens? The famous thing? No, no, when he's a kid. Yeah, he gets left behind. And when they go and find him, and they're all bent out of shape, Jesus, why would you do this to us? How could you do such a terrible thing? What does he say to mom? Didn't you know I would be what? In my father's house is the English translation. The Greek is about my father's things, doing my father's stuff. I think in my father's house is certainly a reasonable translation considering the context. Bigger picture, it's helpful to see Jesus is about his father's, he's about his father's things. And now he's back in Jerusalem in the temple. And what is he, what is he about once again? 
doing his father's things, which in a second, the, the Pharisees are going to start getting after Jesus, saying, by whose authority do you do this stuff? Now, we know he's about his father's things. So we know where the authority comes from. But just, just to get the temple flavor back in our mouths here. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Those who sold, those who sold what? Obviously, the little crosses made out of Jerusalem wood for you to take home all the little trinkets you can buy in Jerusalem at the temple there, right? No. What are people buying at the temple? What'd you say? Boids. Birds. Ty went Jewish for a second there. Uh, yeah, the sacrifices. And, and, it really, and on, one, on one hand, it makes sense. So like if I'm an Israelite and I live up in Galilee, I got to go miles and miles down and let's say the, the, the nature of the sacrifice that I need to, to take part in is, um, you know, I, I have to do like two sheep for me. And then here's my son. He's got, he has like a bunch of pigeons and some turtle doves and all, these, all the different sacrifices that are required by the law. Um, I need to bring all that down with me or I leave it up back in Galilee or I sell it in Galilee and I take the money and I go back to Jerusalem and I buy another one down there. But start, what starts to happen, and we get the sense here, that started to happen is this transactional understanding of forgiveness. And that's what, Je that's what gets Jesus so upset. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Uh, a couple of chapters ago, remember when we have, where's a picture in the temple of Jesus giving it as a parable, but who's in the temple? Along with the Pharisee, a tax collector. And is the, is the tax collector engaging in sacrifices? No, what's he doing? Praying. He's praying. So this my house, it's meant to be a house of prayer, but what is he praying? It's a prayer of, of, of repentance. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And from that repentance, the Lord has set up the sacrificial system to deliver forgiveness to us in a very visual way that can be, that can be felt and experienced. So, but ultimately it's the forgiveness is happening at the heart level. The repentance is happening at the heart level. But unfortunately at this point, it's become so transactionalized that now I gotta, I gotta go down to Jerusalem. I, get, I find one of these guys outside. I buy the cheapest, who's got the cheapest rate on the going of the lamb or whatever I gotta buy. Then there's also an exchange because you have different currencies perhaps. So you've got like, I gotta, I gotta get my money exchanged the money changers, I think a different, a different gospel talks about flipping over the table of the money changers. So you, got it, you can't use like Roman currency to buy holy things. And that's going to come up actually in, you know, in just a few verses um, where, where they say where Jesus says, he, he holds up the denarius and he says, whose likeness and inscription? Right, Caesar's, give, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, they couldn't actually use that currency in the temple because it like, it, it like defamed the temple. It, it, brought, it desacralized the, the temple. So you had to actually change outside the temple. You had to change your Roman money for Jewish currency and then use the Jewish currency to buy the stuff for the sacrifices. And then there's like exchange rate problems, right? They didn't have like that, the ongoing, the Googleable, what is the current exchange rate? So you have different exchange rates that people are getting robbed. So in one sense, you've got the potential for robbing the whole, it's a money-making scheme now, the changing of money and also the selling of products for the purpose of sacrifices. Forgiveness has been transactionalized. In that sense, it's a den of robbers. But then also, uh, in a sense, if I'm, if I'm going to the temple thinking I can just live my life however I want to live, knowing that I'm going to then go down to the temple with, my, with a couple of bucks, buy some pigeon, and then have the pigeon killed, and that's just the way that I can justify my sin. It's just part of my life. I'm just going to keep living in my sin, enjoying my sin, and, and paying for a, the death of a turtle dove. It's like I'm robbing, I'm robbing forgiveness from God. I'm robbing from God. So this transactionalized, Un, so for forgiveness or repentance being, being ripped out of the heart, being put out here in this kind of ex opera operato, to use the language of the, the Roman Catholics, by the, by the working of the work itself. Is that phrase, you heard that phrase before? We usually talk about it around, around Reformation Sunday. The idea is that like doing a particular action 
even without any faith in the heart or any kind of like knowing what's going on, doing this particular action will, will give you the forgiveness from God as, as a transaction. You put your money in the vending machine, out pops the forgiveness. And so that's how the, the, the whole sacrificial system has been reduced out of the heart down to this. And it's upsetting Jesus. So he goes in and he calls them on it, but he's not just calling them on it because they're wrong. And I got a couple of questions here. I'll get you in a second. He calls them on it because what's about to happen next, he's, in the, he's teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the people, that those three form the Sanhedrin. They're seeking to destroy him. Why? Because he's, 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 under, he's like ripping out the entire system that they so carefully built up. He's flipping over the tables. He's undermining the whole system that's there. And it makes the Pharisees very, very angry. So Jesus swats the hornet's nest is the picture always in my mind. This, this, is the, this is the event that comes in. He's already, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. They're seeking to kill him. And now he goes directly into Jerusalem and just like smacks him in the face. So he's, Jesus is bringing the crucifixion. We know where this is headed. And ultimately the people who are betraying him and killing him, surely they're guilty. They are guilty. But we, we can see how Jesus is finally letting it come to this. He's not, making it, he's not making it hard. He's not hiding in the bushes. He's walking into the temple and causing a commotion over good things, to be sure. And then they, they're seeking to, he's daily, he's teaching daily in the temple. This is a massive thing. And the, the, the temple is there for the sacrifices. And here's Jesus, who's built this huge following at this point. And there he's in the temple teaching. And everybody's listening to him. They did not, verse 48, they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. They were scared of the people. They cared more about what the people thought than what God thought. If it's, if it's actually wrong, if, if Jesus was actually doing this stuff uh, unjustly, then he should have been, he should have been removed. And the people should have, the, the Pharisees and all those guys should have said, we got to do the right thing, regardless of what the crowds do to us. That's what being faithful looks like. They weren't caring about being faithful. All they wanted was uh, the crowds. They were scared of the crowds. Jesus, in complete opposite. He didn't care about what the crowds thought. He was always going to say what he was going to say. The people were hanging on his words. I think you have a question, like verse uh, number three on your handout under this section is... Uh, why do you think the people hearing him teach in the temple were hanging on his words? What is it about Jesus' teaching that's so different? What's he teaching in the temple? Then they've heard, what are people used to hearing at the temple? Law. And now Jesus is completely flipping everything upside down. Like he's, he's actual forgiveness. The forgiveness that was once I had to pay for it is all transactional. And they're missing the whole point. And now Jesus is actually just speaking forgiveness to these people. And they're, they're it's like, you can't get enough of it. And, you, and you've, you, you might've been this way yourself. You might be this way yourself. And you certainly, I've met people this way, like people who have been starved from the gospel of the forgiveness of sins for their entire life, just from misunderstanding or simply not hearing it. Then when the lights finally go off, you're saying, what you're saying is like, that I'm, I'm sinful but Jesus only died for me because I'm a sinner. So I don't have to be good for him to save me, but he saves me because I'm bad. And you're like, yeah, I've been learning that my whole life since VBS when I was three. <laughs> but for somebody who's never heard that before, they're like, what? This is fantastic news. And they're hanging on his words. Everything he says, they can't get enough of Jesus. That's the context. I got two questions that I probably can't answer. Yeah. I thought I read somewhere that the temple had its own money that people had to convert their money into. Right. So it wasn't just Israeli money. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, and, and there wouldn't have been Israeli money because Rome would have like confiscated. You couldn't, where are you going to use it, right? So what's, the currency was established by the ruling power, which was Rome at the time, which had Caesar's face on it, but you couldn't use it in the temple. You had to get the temple money. Yeah. Right. But what's that exchange? Right. What is... How much Roman dollars do I have to use? Because I, when, I, when I sold my lamb up in Galilee, I only got X amount of denarii for it. And now I got to go down here and exchange the Roman currency for the temple currency. Oh, it's going to cost more to get the... the so the, but the whole thing is so... 
it's 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 um it's ripped out of the heart and it's all taking it's all transactional in front of me and there's no as Jesus himself or uh, as, as the Lord says uh, sacrifices I do not is it is it Psalm 51 where I've, I haven't desired sacrifices but a contrite heart but then from the contrite heart come the right sacrifices so sacrifices aren't bad God himself set them up but they're meant to go in tandem with the heart so too with the whole all of our sacraments today. Uh, the Lord's Supper is meant to go hand in hand with faith. It's not like a magic pill that we just like run around. We could, we could put in a vending machine. That's twice vending machines are made in the Bible study today, by the way. You could put in a vending machine at some random store and hope some passerby accidentally pushes the wrong button and gets body and blood out of the vending machine and they just get forgiveness of sins, like some kind of a vitamin or some kind of a pill. That's ex opera operato, where it just has this like magical sense to it. Well, that's disconnected from faith, and that's not the case. Hand, John. When Jesus founded the temple, pretty much aligns directly with what Martin Luther found in the Vatican when he went to Rome. I mean, did, did Martin Luther kind of make that connection? I mean, certainly. Forgiveness from the priests? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess I, I can't think of any specific writings offhand where he draws that connection, but at its root, that was his, that was his big beef, was like, wait a second, so uh, here I am in Rome. In his mind, it was, it was supposed to be the holiest of places, um, and yet everything had been transactionalized in the same way. I have to pay money to see a bone of some bird that allegedly led on St. John the Baptist's hand when he was saying, behold, the Lamb of God, and, bird landed on his finger and that bird's foot was fossilized and now you can see this foot and have 10 years off in purgatory that sounds insane but that's the kind of stuff that was happening and uh and you so you pay money to get years off in purgatory it's all transactional and the heart is out of it now i think from the person who's actually engaging in those things they're longing for actual forgiveness and I think that's probably also the case for many, many people who went down to Jerusalem. They're just like, what do I do? Uh, they're, 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 be, they're beat up by guilt and shame. And they're, they're told by the Pharisees to go to the temple and, and that they're having to take part in this thing and they're just getting scammed. Same with the, the Catholics at the time of the Reformation, going to, going, to, going to Rome, being scared to death of damnation and be, because of their sin and being told, hey, there's a way out. Do these things, pay this money, do this stuff. And so the people are kind of like, their conscience is, is, is driving them in a good way to this stuff, but they're not, they're not actually getting the gospel. We're actually gonna see that same dynamic happen with Judas. What is, so when Judas, when it strikes Judas that he did something bad, where does he go before he hangs himself? He goes back to the temple where they're supposed to be handing out what? Forgiveness for doing stuff like betraying Jesus. And he gives them the money back, which is repentance. I don't, I don't know what else to do. And, and instead of speaking forgiveness as they're supposed to, they, oh, you're in your own, you're in, you're in your sin there. We can't do anything for you. It's devastating. Yeah. So you, so you can, yeah, anyway, that's just getting at, getting at what's going on in the heart of people going to, down to the temple. Was there another hand over here besides Tom? Also in John chapter 2, there's a cleansing of the temple, which occurs much earlier in the Holy Week. So did Jesus do that twice? Yeah, that's, there's, there's a couple of different perspectives on that from the common commentators. So John is, is notorious for not writing in order. So all of the events of John are kind of happening in a different way. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which is why they're all side by side, they seem to parallel each other quite well. And where there's a hole in, let's say, Matthew, Mark seems to fill it in or Luke fills it in, there's, there's, and there's certainly unique stories in each of them. John is like totally different. He doesn't have the Lord's Supper, right? So we have the John 6, where he has the feeding of the 5,000, unless you eat my flesh, there'll be no life in you. So it seems to be a lot of pictures of the Lord's Supper happening in John, but he doesn't, actually, he doesn't actually have the institution of the Lord's Supper like we have in the other Gospels. 
So John, a lot of stuff seems out of order, which makes sense because he's writing 50 years later, 60, however long it is after the case. So some speculate that John, the, the ordering is not as important to John as the content. John's more of this artist of getting these, these ideas across. And when you read the Gospel of John, it kind of flows that way. Lots of very poetic things. Um, others would say that, yeah, he cleansed it. He cleansed it twice, both at the beginning and then here at the end. But I, had, I didn't actually go digging too deep into that for this, Tom. But I have seen, I've heard both arguments and I, I haven't been, I mean, I, I think the, the order argument regarding John is significant, but the fact they put it in John 2, the wedding of Cana, to have it at the beginning, it's like he must have done it at the beginning as well. And the Pharisees, back then though, they didn't really know who he was. At this point, he was, everybody knew what was going on. Everybody knew who Jesus was. But early on in the ministry, um, it would have been after the wedding at Cana because that thing happens first in John 2. So he has just done his first miracle, but he's telling everybody to be quiet about it. So he was just some random guy in the temple causing a ruckus. He probably didn't notice it as much. But it's still, Jesus' motivation was the same. What are you guys doing? Another hand over here. All right, good. So that's, that's chapter 19. So we got this, we got the, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, um, the Sadducees, the chief priests are all out to get Jesus. They're everybody, he's teaching daily in the temple and everybody's listening to him. And then we get chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching, no, it wasn't, so it has to be, it wasn't like just some random day. So we know he's in Jerusalem, it's, it's Holy Week. He's not hanging on the cross yet, so it's not Friday. So we, have, we know it's probably Monday or Tuesday of that week. One day, as Jesus is teaching the people in the temple that he had just cleansed my father's house, being about my father's things, and is teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news. I mean, just simply, especially, so for us, we kind of, we can, we can cliche the gospel. We talk about the gospel of sins forgiven and so forth. Um, but gospel in the Greek simply means the good news. So he's there in the temple preaching the good news. And that's how it was referred to. And so what is the good news? That as people are hanging in every word of this good news, what's the good news? Their sins are being forgiven. They're being set free from their, from their bondage. So as he's preaching and teaching, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? So it's a question over Jesus's authority, which I mean, it wasn't, doesn't necessarily fit, but I think it was a good opportunity to grab a princess bride meme for your hand out there. I keep using that word authority. I don't think it means what you think it means. So just, I know you guys know this by now, my big shtick on the distinction between power and authority. It's very, very helpful for us to be reminded of because it stands behind a lot of different things in the, in the church's life. Power is coming from within a person. So the word, the word for power, the Greek word for power is the same word for dynamite, dunamis. So the power for dynamite comes from within the dynamite. And so... Like an individual can have the power to dunk a basketball or the power to wrestle you to the ground. It's a power from within the individual. Authority is the Greek word exousia. It's a different word. But very often we use the words power and authority interchangeably. And we have to kind of, you, know, you always be careful by using those words interchangeably because they mean different things. Jesus has both. He certainly has power within himself, all the power in the universe but he also has authority. So it's not just that he's out doing miracles, but he's been sent by God, the Father, to announce stuff on earth that's true in heaven. That's what authority means, is to be set in place by another to bring the authority, to bring the validity of the other. So that's, you'll see the same language of, uh, in the language of office, um, the office of the ministry and confession and absolution as a called and ordained servant of Christ and by his authority, I forgive you all your sins. Wait, what? So, so according, not according to power, 
So other, I mean, I, what is, who is a human to just forgive sins? I don't have the power to forgive sins, some kind of magically take it away or something like that, right? Especially having sinned for myself. Authority is simply relaying the message. So God has said that your sins are forgiven, and he's the one who set it in place that, hey, when, when within my church, when a pastor speaks this to my people, it's just as valid and certain and in heaven as it is on earth. So that's authority, brings this tremendous comfort of the forgiveness of sins. And that's gonna be a big beef for the, for the chief priests and the scribes here because if Jesus's authority is from heaven, I think it's a, hand, a question on your hand out there, why would the authority of Jesus be a problem for the temple leadership? Why is it an issue? Why do they care about his, who gave you this authority to do this stuff? What's the, what's the problem? Yeah. No. Well, if Jesus is actually doing this stuff from heaven, if his authority is from heaven, and I use that language because that's the language that, that Jesus himself uses against the Pharisees here in a second. If the authority from Jesus is from heaven, would that put it above or below the authority of the, of the chief priests? Above. And so that's one thing. It kind of undercuts all the stuff that they're saying and doing, which would have ideally been in tandem, but it wasn't. And what's the kind of stuff that Jesus is saying? What's the, what's the main thing, would you say, that Jesus is doing that the Pharisees didn't like? If you're, if you're contrasting, it's a vague question, sorry, it's bad. If you're contrasting the teaching of Jesus from the teaching of the Pharisees, how would you maybe summarize that for a child? What are the Pharisees trying to do? Well, what are the Pharisees doing to people? What are they trying to tell people? Do better. Do better. So the Pharisees are focused on the law, right? So you're in the right, right window. And what's Jesus trying to do? Is he trying to tell people to keep the law? No, what's he doing? He's forgiving sins. So the entire existence of the, Pharise of the Pharisaical Sanhedrin system is, is kind of bolstered by this the necessity of the law for salvation. And if Jesus is speaking with an authority of heaven that comes down and says, your sins are forgiven, what does that do to the credibility or the longevity of the whole Pharisaical system? If they're making a living out of giving you law to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, to work your way out of your sin, and Jesus just comes up and just forgives it, what's, then they have no point. They're tearing down everything. So it wasn't just they had a message that Jesus disagreed with. Jesus is actually directly undermining their entire legalistic system. So they're, in, they're interested in his authority. Now Jesus, so by whose authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? Verse three, he answered them, I, will, I also will ask you a question. <laughs> so notice this. The tactic here, the handout question is, what is Jesus's tactic for navigating hostile situations and how can this be utilized in our conversations with unbelievers and hostile situations? What does Jesus, well, what does he not do? He doesn't answer the question because he knows that they're not really after an answer. He knows that they're actually trying to get him for something. So Jesus is trying to continue a conversation for a purpose, he's gonna end up teaching them more later. But when you ask a question, are you actually making any point? Have you, are you saying anything? No. When you, end, when you end sentences and question marks, you're just bringing it up as a question. It's, in, it's, not, it's not quite as offensive. So when you're engaging, this, is, this isn't Jesus's point, although Jesus does very, very often engage in question asking with other people. They ask him a question, he doesn't answer it, he has more questions. Very helpful tactic. And when you're conversing with, with like unbelieving neighbors, especially like hostile, angry neighbors, or someone who is like an unbeliever who's walked away from the faith for whatever reason, to engage in the conversation and not making an assertions, like, like trying, to, trying to convince them by making assertions is, in my experience, less effective than having questions like, have you considered, uh, what do you say about this? Or can you explain to me what you mean by that? 
What do you mean when you say that a loving God couldn't let bad stuff happen in this world? What do you mean by bad stuff? Like who, so where, where are you getting your idea of what is bad stuff? There's a, so, you're saying, so you're saying that there is an objective picture of bad. And you've said nothing. You just keep asking questions. You, so you believe organized religion is corrupt. I, I think I understand what you, I, you know, I, I guess I'm not sure. What do you mean by organized religion? Uh, and how did, you, how did you reach that conclusion about organized religion being corrupt? So yeah, I hear what you're saying, that individual pastors have committed great, great sins in history, and that's, I, I see that. That's a sinner's being sin. But how is that like that organized religion is necessarily bad? And how is organized religion, would you say, different than, than what Jesus has given us as the church? So maybe as a question, how is organized religion different than what Jesus says to do as a church? You haven't said anything. Obviously, you're saying plenty of stuff, but you haven't like, you're, you're trying to engage in a conversation and leading toward, leading them toward an answer. So questions are disarming. Also, I mean, Columbo uh, made this, exemplified this, just, just pretend to be an idiot. I, I'm sorry, I just don't know what you're, I don't get it. I, can you maybe help me? Help me understand. I mean, in, a, in, a, in not a deceptive way, but in a real way, um, I don't think, I want to make sure I understand what you're, what you're saying. So could you, could you maybe say it one more time? Um, and, and when you, so when you say this, that organized religion is, is evil, so what do you mean by, what do you mean by evil? What do you mean by, organ- so you're having a question. You're not, you're not making any assertions. You're not saying, oh yeah, well not my church, or oh yeah, or you're just saying that because, and now we're in a personal fight. So keep personalities out of it, asking questions about what they've already said, and just you're engaging in conversation. And it's interesting because when you talk to somebody about what they say, very often you'll find that A, they haven't thought through what they've said, and, but you're also, you're showing that you care about what they think. So you're actually, and you do care about what they think, they're your friends, that's why you're talking to them, but you're actually able to build rapport and you can have better conversations and you're keeping, the, you're keeping the tension down. So that's helpful, asking questions. And just as one of the examples that Jesus uses to navigate hostile situations. But also remember, he got crucified at the end, so don't get your hopes up. Yeah, what? I was going to say, it also puts the ball back in the other person's court, right? If you say, well, what do you mean by organized religion? You're putting that person to say that to you in a position where they may actually say something. <laughs> well, so that, would, so that would be true if our goal was to make them say something dumb. So we're not interested. I want to be clear on this. The goal is never to win an argument um, because you can win arguments all day and not actually accomplish anything helpful for the individual. The, the goal is to actually demystify Christianity, to get them to the foot of the cross as quickly as possible. Um, but by asking questions, you stay in the driver's seat of a conversation. So you're, in, you're, you're controlling where the conversation goes, asking follow-up questions, getting clarity of what they mean, because very often you can make the mistake of trying to answer a question that, that isn't really the issue for them. So if a person's angry with you because you're a pastor in my situation, like, are they really mad at me I, I'm a, because I'm a pastor, or are they mad at God because his brother died when he was, when he was a kid? I, don't, I can't figure out that, and I can't put a Band-Aid on that unless I know that that's the, the case. So I need to talk to this guy for a while, not just talk about the superficial stuff, right? So staying in the driver's seat of the conversation, asking questions, engaging, showing that you care, it's a helpful tactic. Try it. I encourage you to try it this week. Just walk, or if you're standing there, I've done it before at like uh, the car dealer. You know, you're standing in the car dealership, the, uh, you're, waiting, you're waiting for them to like, change your oil. And you're, the TV is always like there with the propaganda. And then somebody, like one time, this lady said something about, what, it, was the, it was the election season, so you can figure out what the kind of stuff was going. She just said something. Like she broadcasted in a way to like these people in the room that there's gonna be influential on them. So I was like, I'm sorry, what was that? <laughs> oh, oh what, what did you mean? What did you mean by that? Like, have, well, you, uh, it just ended, it stopped. It was, it was brilliant. 
So just asking the question, because most people make assertions without thinking about what they've, without thinking what they've said. And it's fun for you to actually start thinking through, because if um, your non-believing neighbor and family, um, you are in the best position to tell them about Jesus, to have the, a gospel conversation with them. Like, it's not, I, they're not my friends, they're your friends. They're not my kids, they're your kids, they're your family, right? So uh, for you to kind of navigate these conversations is much, much more helpful because you're in a position to actually speak the gospel, to bring light into the darkness. And you only get, how do you get better at anything? Practicing. So practice on people that you don't care about. <laughs> and then use it on the people that you do, right? What do you mean by that? Mean by that? <laughs> people that you don't know, like the random people at the oil change, you know, like uh, having conversation or sitting, uh, it, was, it was actually, this is all based on a philosophy out of a book called Tactics by Greg Kokel that Adam Francisco got me on back in college. And Adam said, when he was reading the book, he was like on a plane, the classic, like I was on a plane reading that book. And the guy next to him, he just thought, I'm gonna try this out. And he started asking questions of the guy sitting next to him on the plane, just to have fun with it. Cause he said, you're gonna get off the plane, you never see that guy again. So it's a great opportunity to try it. Try it with your barber, something. All right. I got like three minutes. I don't have a barber. Right? <laughs> so uh, let's see. So, so he, Jesus sets up what, by, uh, let's see, the authority. Verse three, he answered them, I will ask you a question. Now you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say for man, then the people will stone us for death. They're really concerned about what the people think. For they're convinced that John was a prophet. The people were convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Now remember Jesus' authority, we know it's from heaven. That's the significance of his baptism. Remember Luke 3, Jesus is baptized, heaven opens up, this is my son. The Holy Spirit descends on him. So Jesus is speaking and teaching with the authority of heaven. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, you might be thinking, well, Jesus just doesn't answer the question. Well, first of all, he's answered the question many times. There's not any doubt at this point, but he also, he doesn't say it directly, but read the next verse. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. So what do you think Jesus is gonna do in this parable? He's gonna answer the question. He's going to come out and say by whose authority he does this and why it's significant and why it ultimately matters. But, so he, but he's going to hide it in a parable that's going to, that's going to ultimately, and this would be, we'll, we'll talk about this next week, he's going to use this parable, engaging with the crowds, engaging with the chief priests for the purpose of bringing about repentance in the priests themselves, the chief priests. He's, used, he's going to set a very terrible parable about those who, those who reject the vine dressers, and they're, they, about the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and everyone who falls on the stone will be broken, it'll crush him. It's like really jarring imagery, but it's not helpful. If I already believe in Jesus, then all you're doing is telling me that the Pharisees are going to get crushed. But if I'm a Pharisee, all of a sudden it has me, it has me fearing. And this is repentance. The law is being preached to the Pharisee. Jesus is engaging with the vine dressers, the disobedient, wicked servants for the purpose of bringing them faith. And he's gonna unfold in the authority that the, the father sends the son into the vineyard. We'll talk about that more next week. But so Jesus, just so, just so we can kind of put a bow on that one, um, he's, he's not answering it directly, but he wants, because he wants to engage in the conversation. He's gonna give a parable and engage further conversation with the Pharisees. Any questions? Linda. So I, I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful to think about salvation in the Old Testament. I'm kind of treading on carefully here. We can, we can think about salvation in the Old Testament the same way as we can think about salvation in the New Testament. That is, if I were to say, can a person be saved apart from receiving the Lord's Supper? You would say to me what? Yes. Can a person be saved apart from receiving holy baptism? You'd say to me, yes. 
What about all those Baptists who despise the office of the ministry and deny holy absolution? Can they be saved? Certainly. Now, unfortunately, they're, they're, they're rejecting all these wonderful gifts of the Lord that's bringing certainty of our forgiveness to us in the system that God himself has set up for our benefit. But I can still have faith in the promise apart from these physical gifts. In the same way in the Old Testament. So we have faith in the promise, seed, the Messiah. That's being passed through. But to bring to bring the mercy of God in a physical, tangible way to the people. He sets up the sacrifices. That's part of the significance of Psalm 51 at the end when it talks about how it's a broken and contrite heart that I'm after, not this the outward deed, because the outward deed can be abused. But when the broken and contrite heart is there, the deed is, is ultimately helpful. The sacrifices were a helpful thing. So think about it practically. In the, the, like if I'm, if I'm living... As, a, as an Israelite, and every time I do particular sins, I'm like, I'm having to go, like, kill, the, the Passover lamb is a good example. It had to be a lamb without blemish, a, like a young, like, you're, you're, you've raised fuzzy, this cute little lamb. Can you, have you raised a dog? Have you taken, can you imagine taking a little puppy that you love, you're cuddly, the kids are, you know the kids are playing with those lambs and out on the farm, but then when you, when you say certain things against your wife, you then have to take that lamb and slit its throat, drain the blood. Take, it's like, so the point of that is sin actually hurts. It actually costs something. It costs ultimately Jesus. And all those sacrifices in the Old Testament are pictures of what it would cost Jesus. So seeing the depth of it actually I mean, in many ways, I think it's helpful for the conscience to like this, my sin actually does cost something. For them, it physically, I mean, actually financially cost them something because I have to then go buy a sheep or take my own sheep, which is ultimately money for my family and use it in the sacrifices, right? Uh, but there was also, it was, the system was set up very friendly to those with no money. So remember like the whole thing with Mary sacrificing two turtle doves, there was a more expensive option. But that was two turtle doves is for those who have no money, which Mary and Joseph didn't. And even for those who don't even make it down there for the sacrifice, every once a year you get the, the high priest who goes in and does the, the, the major sacrifice of the high, the high festivals every year. Or the lamb, when the, the sins are put on the lamb, the, the um, scapegoat, it's sent out into the wilderness, bearing the sins of all the people. So we have God just giving us forgiveness in all these different ways. And it's bringing certainty and delivering forgiveness to the individual. But it's certainly different. And it is, it is more of a law than we would see it on this side of heaven. But remember, like, there was no, Adam didn't have any kind of system of forgiveness. There wasn't like the temple there yet. Abraham too. Yet there's faith in the promise. Great question. I think we're at time. The Lord be with you.